You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Canada makes a bold move on immigration. Can other centre-left parties and governments follow? How can reporters avoid going off half-cocked amid the frenzy of social media? And Twitter welcomes Donald Trump back, though he declines thus far to show up. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Steve Crawshaw will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll hear about an attempt to preserve antique British regional slang and visit an exhibition examining the appeal of combat-themed video games. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, broadcaster and political correspondent for Yahoo News UK, and by Steve Crawshaw, Policy Director at Freedom From Torture. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, We will not be discussing the World Cup in detail in this episode, so for light introductory banter at the top, I thought we could chat about it a bit because obviously we are now less than an hour from kickoff of the most crucial game of the entire group stages, the one I know the whole world is waiting for Australia versus France. Um, are you both as excited as I am? I mean, you're going to get beaten, aren't you? No. <laughs> I mean, it's France. I, yeah. I'm, as an England fan, England's very good and I'm afraid of France. The one team I think that's our biggest threat, so good luck. Having well, I, said, Rich, we've had Saudi and Argentina already. Exactly. So, exactly. Know, I, yeah. I, I will not be having any of this <laughs> this this namby-pamby defeatist talk. I fully expect Australia to triumph over the French. I'm going to go ahead and say 4 or 5 nil. I don't England. think... I, I don't think the French will know what has hit them. My people have spent centuries where what you people call soccer is concerned, lulling the world into a sense of false security. This evening is when we strike. You mark my word. Uh, No, but seriously, are you actually enjoying it, Nardine? Despite everything, England did look quite sharp. Uh, England did extremely For me, first of all, the biggest takeaway from that match was Iran, not singing the national anthem. And, that was a big move. Yeah, and the people in the the, the crowds, and, and that was like, without doubt, for me, the most significant moment so far in this World Cup. Um, also, there's the issues with Qatar, just generally being awful. Uh, when it comes <laughs> to the game, though, when it comes to England, um, it was very, very good. It was really good to see Saka and Rashford mm-hmm. score, um, and Sterling, particularly because, you know, a lot of them got abuse at the Euros. They did. Um, but we still let two goals in, and it was Iran. So I, I know it was 6-2 win, but we shouldn't have let those two goals in with our team like that. It should have been 6-0. So, I mean... I, I never thought I'd be saying this about an England team. Like maybe I'm, maybe I'm just taking it all for granted now. But those two goals should yeah, have happened. You, you, maybe you, it was you an act of political solidarity, of like acknowledging the fact they'd shown such courage. At the maybe, of the game. maybe. You, you, you watch later on. You won't catch Australia allowing France to tap in a couple of consolation goals at the end like that. <laughs> we will crush them. Uh, Steve, have you been paying rapt attention to the World Cup? I don't feel pay proper attention to the World Cup at all, except till it gets to the, the final stages. But as you were just saying, I mean that the dramas of the politics around it have been. Extreme. I mean, one is the Qatar things are so interesting. It happens again and again that people think we're going to look so glorious because the world's mm-hmm. attention will be on us. And then like, yeah, the world's attention is on you, but maybe not in quite the way that you <laughs> wanted. So that's been a kind of a small irony to watch. And I do 
wonder if they kind of are wondering about that. And also, yeah, things like Iran happening in parallel is extraordinary. It was interesting. I, I kind of get why, obviously, British television and so on are bound to lead on the on, on the game result. But I agree with Nadine that actually what we were seeing is in a global context truly remarkable. And the one thing I'll add as well is, as you say, it's made Qatar look awful and it's made FIFA just look like a disgrace. Like, completely. not only was it completely corrupt, it gave the last World Cup to Russia, gave this one to Qatar, despite neither having the infrastructure to, to host it. And Qatar basically had no stadiums. Um, and then also there's the stuff with the armbands and um, that bizarre speech that one of them made about In, being Including disabled. the hopelessness of failing to ask the questions earlier. It's like, oh, we've suddenly just discovered this is a new set of rules. Yeah. They had not done anything. And that like speech that. that guy made about, I'm ginger, I understand <laughs> what it's like to be gay and disabled. It was just honestly shocking. So FIFA just looked like a disgrace. But good luck with Australia. <sighs> we don't need it. Um, we will start tonight's show proper with the always... Uh, a subject, immigration, always discussed in tones of equable reason. Um, it is a tricky area for the politicians of democratic countries to manage, as the position of many of their voters is that they want, nay demand, all the benefits of immigration, but tend to be less enthused about immigrants. And it is arguably especially tricky for the politicians of left-wing parties, who must also find a way to heed the general enthusiasm for immigration of their own membership. We have seen different approaches of late from two centre-left leaders. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wants to welcome one and a half million immigrants in the next three years. In the UK, opposition leader Sakir Starmer wants to, as he put it, wean the UK off its immigration dependency. Um, Nadine, first of all, which of those two approaches seems like it's going to be more actually plausible, workable and perhaps even profitable? So, as the OBR forecast um, last week, we need it, well, the OBR says we need more immigration to stimulate growth. Our economy is in a terrible state. It's been in a terrible state for the last few years. Mm -hmm. the, the economic stagnation we've seen hasn't really been given enough attention. I think one of the things that Liz trusted successfully, everything else was a disaster, but when it comes to growth, she brought that front and centre and said we need to grow the economy. And that is absolutely right. If we grow the economy, our taxes won't need to be as high, etc. Um, when it comes to Keir Starmer's approach on the economy, he's been very careful not to put a number on it. Mm -hmm. And actually, what he's been largely suggesting is, by weaning ourselves off it, he's not saying we'll stop immigration like Swella Braverman, who just thinks it's almost like a tap you can just turn off. It's more an acknowledgement of this growth issue of we need, we can't just suddenly stop. It will have a devastating impacts on the economy and that's not what businesses are calling for and, and um, anybody that knows anything about growth but the line I think Starmer's trying to walk is we're not going to say we want loads of immigration yeah 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 which is what people more towards the left might say we're not going to stop immigration completely which is pe people on the kind of very right would say but more taking this centre ground mm -hmm. maybe in an era of like what he wants to be a second Blair and be more practical and say it's not good to have immigrants coming in for cheap labour to stimulate the economy which I don't think many people disagree with but at the same time, you can't just switch off and expect everything to be OK. So I think what Keir Starmer's doing, and it's very telling he hasn't put an arbitrary number on it, is trying to walk that line of being practical. And I think it will draw the more centrist, other practical business owners to to his um, his vision, because it's not good for the economy to just randomly say no more immigration. Let's see what happens. Uh, Steve. 
rather depressingly across the Western democratic sphere these last few years, politicians have internalised the lesson that one rarely loses votes by beating up on immigrants. Is there a way you can not lose votes by embracing them? Can you make the positive case and, well, then comes the tricky bit, actually get the voters to agree with you? Can you, can you not merely make the positive case but actually sell the positive case? Well, I certainly think that just on a kind of moral and human basis, people ought to be trying to do this. I mean, it is incredible how uh, this government has repeatedly told such really appalling lies, among other things, about why people are making the channel crossings, why these things are happening, what they are fleeing. Um, And it's striking that the Labour Party seems very, very hesitant for the reasons that you partly already described and you're addressing there is that the media is so hostile that they feel unable to be, if you like, cheerleaders. But to answer your question directly, I mean, I'm not suggesting she was completely perfect in every sense, but Angela Merkel as the Christian Democrat Chancellor of Germany, Mm -hmm. she broadly, even when there was so so much barking and yapping and yelling from the right in Germany basically said, we can do this. We, we have a moral need to do it and we just need to make it happen. And we don't see any of that sense of like, this needs to happen, so let's make that happen. And I think that the the fact is that the narratives are so often unbelievably misleading. And that's a problem that I think you need to lean into, if you like, in other words, to confront that those falsities rather than playing along. Labour has allowed the narrative to a quite large extent to be dominated by the, the by the false narratives we've seen over the years. One of the things I would add as well is a lot of this links, for me at least, in my eyes, to austerity. When public services were cut and everything has kind of stopped functioning properly, people saw immigrants and thought, we haven't got this... Our, public services can't cope and that's what the the kind of Brexit campaign capitalised on when it comes to immigration because if you ask the average person why they don't don't want immigration if they're not like like, you know extremely far right they normally say oh I can't get a doctor's appointment I can't get a hospital appointment there aren't any school places and it's that fear of we don't have the infrastructure to support an increase in the demographic and that is because we haven't had the investment from the government because we've had austerity so in my view that's why Brexit happened and that's why this kind of anti-immigrant sentiment has been weaponised by people on the phone right but there is that sense of we can't help cope with any more people because we haven't had houses built we haven't got the infrastructure there and that's because of us in my view because of austerity so i think you know there is the side that people are just very anti-immigrant for sinister reasons and i think there are those who are concerned about more immigration because we just don't have we don't have we don't have the infrastructure there we've got a housing crisis like you can understand why some people might look at it and think we can't have more immigrants to follow that up though nadine do you think there is something possibly more inherent and ineffable, which is a challenge to any British leader to get out in front of this, which is that island nations regard this differently. And I think of my own experience growing up in Australia where it's even weirder because you can make the case that with the obvious exception of people descended from Australia's indigenous inhabitants, everybody's an immigrant. Um, But also, even if you just think of the waves of post-war immigration in Australia, everybody in Australia knows somebody who is descended from one of those waves or works with somebody or is perhaps even married to one of those people. Um, And yet, 
there's still political mileage in insisting that the next wave of immigrants are the ones that are going to bring civilization to an end. Yeah, it's very. I do think there is an argument there in island nations, and I think one of the things that you do hear about people is we're only a small island. We're only a small island. Well, no one makes that case in Australia, in fairness. <laughs> <laughs> At least here, um, and I do think in Europe the fact that countries are more, you know, you can cross a border and you're in a different country. For us, you have to travel through the channel and all of that kind of stuff. So I do think that is an element, but I also do think this country more broadly is a small C conservative country and we've also in a lot of ways more so than uh, the the equivalents in other G7 nations we have seen it, such severe austerity I mean the NHS isn't collapsing because of Covid it's collapsing because of lack of investment mm-hmm. so that has been a key driving factor and I think if the economy were in a healthier place I don't and, and public services were in a healthier place and we had enough housing like bare minimum then I don't think you'd have the, the, the far right wouldn't be able to manipulate and make this anti-immigrant rhetoric as um, like subtly appealing and presenting it as legitimate concerns because we wouldn't we wouldn't have concerns about um, overcrowding on the NHS or whatever because we'd be okay. So I do think a lot of it comes down, and you've seen it in history with fascism, like it's always the, the enemy, the immigrants, when something goes wrong. And I think we're in a really bad place with our economy, like really bad. Um, so it's not surprising to me that people are latching onto the immigrant issue. Well, let's move along to one of the things that journalists enjoy most, which is stroking our beards and pontificating sagely about journalistic ethics. Last week's incident in which a missile landed in Poland was first and foremost a tragedy. Two altogether blameless people were killed. But it was also a lesson, if one that will likely be widely unheeded in the perils of leaping to conclusions. Many were swift to claim that the missile was Russian, launched at Poland either as a deliberate provocation of NATO or as an accidental demonstration of Russia's military ineptitude. Among them was a Associated Press reporter James Lacosta, who has now been dismissed for filing a report assigning blame to Russia shortly before NATO officials concluded that the missiles were likely Ukrainian. Um, Steve, this is, is it not, a tale as old as time. The journalist wants to be first. And in so doing? Yeah, I have to say my sympathy kind of goes with the individual journalist because the idea that the individual is here responsible when Associated Press own... Rules you would hope has it a needs vast sign apparatus off. of gatekeepers. It has a sign-off. You have to if you have only one source. Like okay, it's gone against the rules. There should have been more than one source. But yes, to go to your thing, of course, if you have a big enough story and you've got one source, it was described as a senior U.S. source, and we have no reason to disbelieve that. Then that's kind of that is legitimate for journalists to go. That's exciting, um, and they themselves print it. But then. It caused such fuss, it caused such embarrassment for all of the media who I mean, picked this, it up did, the politicians I mean, that this guy at the bottom of the heap is the one who's thrown out of the door. I think it's a kind of a slightly odd that AP should collectively take responsibility. That is true, but even so, a, a tale from real life just today on a story I filed of vastly less consequential import. A diligent sub-editor picked up that one particular bit of what I'd filed had been overhauled by subsequent events, for which I am grateful, as one should always be to sub-editors who do that and therefore stop you from looking foolish. But, um, Nadine, I, I did want to kind of make this a bit of a confession booth at this point. Have you, and I'll ask you as well, Steve, so get thinking, have you ever jumped the gun at all? Have you ever gone with a story invoking the clause which I know journalists use to excuse themselves. That story as the phrase goes that is too good to check. You you, you don't want to make that call to somebody who's going to tell you, no, sorry, this is bollocks. I've never done anything 
that has had an impact where everyone's like, oh my God, and then reported it. Thankfully you've you've never nearly started World War Three, no, for example. No. Okay, and well, I, good. I, do, I, I really do feel for this journalist because everybody, like in journalism, I don't think any journalist has never like not made a mistake. Like oh. it's, it's <laughs> when, when... Frequently. That's the thing. And I just think with hindsight, that journalist probably really regrets what he did, but also probably wishes he'd taken a step back. But if you've got a senior US official saying, yo, this was Russia and this could potentially be World War Three. on one hand, you can understand why I was like, oh, let's get that out. But then on the other hand, if he'd had a cooler head, he probably would have thought, hang on a minute, this is reported as facts, this could be very bad, because then you had Russia saying, it wasn't us, it's the Western media conspiracy. So it did get out of hand, but I do feel for him, and as you said, editors have a job, that is their job mm-hmm. as an editor, to say, that we're going with this and we're not going with this. So I do feel like... The, resp- the book stops with the editor. If anyone should have resigned, it should have been them. Blaming a reporter... This is the that. other thing journalists enjoy doing most, is blaming our editors. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, he wouldn't have got, he would not have got published if the, the editor clearly agreed. The editor must have seen everything, been told everything, and said, yep, yeah, let's publish that. So they're both responsible, but the person that's the most junior should not be punished for... The, I mean, that editor needs to really consider what they're signing off on in future, if they were fine with that, that, for me, is a bigger issue. If someone at AP isn't checking their, their reporter's work properly, rather than a, a reporter probably making the worst mistake of his entire life, and he's probably completely embarrassed, and I hope they're OK. It, I, don't, I think the book starts with the editor and not the reporter. Um, Steve, a, a photograph which I do encourage our listeners to look up, which I think should be handed round on day one, lesson one of journalism school, is that famous one taken of Harry Truman shortly after what I guess must have been the 1948 US presidential election, in which the Chicago Tribune, um, <clears throat> trying to get its analysis of the election into print early had punted um, quite heavily, it turned out, on the analysis of their Washington correspondent and gone with the headline, Dewey defeats Truman. And there is, of course, that glorious photograph of Harry Truman holding the newspaper up um, (laughs) in front of a a crowd of cackling photographers with an absolutely gleeful expression on his face, as well he might. Um, Have you ever gone near yourself to a Dewey defeats Truman moment? I don't think so. But going back, you, you mentioned sub-editors, the, the, the ones who kind of go through with a tooth comb. I mean, I think all of us, certainly I personally, have been saved on many, many occasions from making mistakes. I mean, such gratitude on that. But you're right. I think elections are the classic ones mm. where, I mean, we've all had it in recent years, but quite likely, to be honest, you go to bed at 2 a.m. and you think, OK, this is how it finishes up. And then you wake up and it's going to be different. <laughs> and in the meantime, those who've had to hit the send button uh, at 2 a.m. Have, are proved completely wrong. So that is constantly there and uh, yeah I, I do think it going back to the, the basic here I do think it quite odd that someone gets sacked when their story actually was accurate as far as it went it said a senior US official said and it's then your boss's decision mm. of how big to play that or whether to bury it in a story you know if you ran into somebody who was the gardener's nephew round the corner who said it's Russian you wouldn't mention it in your story at all. If you talked to someone who was a friend of a friend of a friend of somebody who worked at some friend, you'd kind of, you might mention it cautiously. Seeing a US official, why did that person say it in the yeah, first place? Yeah, that's the person that's, that's at fault. The US <laughs> official just making stuff up. Like, that, that's actually <laughs> that's where that's it who I think the... But it's always the wrong person that gets the blame and that's kind of how life is, I guess. Yeah. Um, just a final quick thought on this one, Nardine. How much more diligent and vigilant do journalists need to be about this, especially now when... And the missile story was a prime example of that. Social media's default is to massively overreact to the most dramatic possible interpretation of any story. So if if you are a journalist 
admired in the online world, as most journalists are now to a certain extent. You have all of social media lighting up saying World War Three is about to start. It's quite difficult in that moment to be the person who just goes, well, just hang on a second, let's see if we can figure out what's actually happened here. Well, I think Twitter has actually been quite useful for checking sources. Weirdly enough, now every journalist is told just because you see it online, just because you see it on Twitter, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And I think, you know, there will be journalists that make those mistakes. But every time you see something on Twitter, particularly now Elon Musk just verifies anyone, you have to check if that source is credible, who's saying it, where it's come from. Because Twitter, as you say, some random account could tweet out, oh, Putin's just invaded Poland. And then if it looks vaguely official and everyone starts retweeting it, like non-journalists, and it's got loads of traffic, people might think, oh, this must be true. But one of the things at least journalists now are trained in is check the sources just because you see it on Twitter just because you see it on social media doesn't mean it's true so I think on on one hand it's actually been quite useful because it constantly makes you question what you're seeing Um, but obviously the flip side is you can get carried away and if you see a video and someone says oh and it, it could be innocuous it could be a video from five years ago which adds to a story but isn't actually happening right now Mm -hmm. and it may seem harmless but there is that risk but I also think Twitter has meant that journalists are a bit more uh, cautious when it comes to, to quoting things. What we also saw was the vilification, of course. I mean, it's interesting, you've got such a high-profile story, people who started saying, actually, I'm not quite sure. There were pylons saying, oh, you're a Russian sympathiser, which kind of gets yeah. complicated. But, but, but that right there is, um, to me, it's always one of the indicators counterintuitively of an actual expert, somebody who is confident enough to say, you know what, I don't know, or I'm not sure. Um, But we will stick with the subject of people overreacting on social media because it has all kicked off thereon regarding the decision by Elon Musk, recent acquirer of Twitter, to restore the account of former US President Donald Trump. Trump was suspended from the platform after the attempted putsch of January the 6th, 2021, and now restored following an online poll conducted by Musk which backed bringing Trump back by 52 to 48, a percentage which, as British listeners will know, is always an indicator of rock-solid decision-making, which won't store up any unfortunate consequences. Several civil liberties groups have now threatened a Twitter boycott and or urged advertisers to the to do the same. Um, First of all, I I will just ask you both quickly, Nardine, first, were you with the 52 or the 48 in this particular instance? I was with the 48. So you did not favour readmitting Donald Trump? I did not. Uh, And Steve? I did not. I'm always on the losing side. It's part of life. (laughs) See, I'm not actually sure what I think, to be honest. See, as sage experts will always freely admit, um, I'm actually, despite myself, regular listeners will know, no fan of the former president, quite impressed by the fact that so far he simply hasn't bothered. I love that fact. I uh, thought that was the bit that really started. I, I, he I, came I, and said, I'm not sure if I want to come back. I'm, looking, I'm looking at his restored feed right now. It is quite melancholy. The last entry is January 8th, 2021. And it says, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. <laughs> Um, see, the thing is, yeah, it pains me to kind of to admit it, but that's that's kind of a cool move, isn't it? Especially if he just holds out. Well, I think for him, it's like, well, I wasn't that bothered anyway. Yeah, kind of thing. Like, you know, he, it would he be went... weak of him to actually yeah. come back at this point. And also, he's got his little enclave on Truth <clears throat> Social, or whatever it is, and he probably thinks, I don't want to go back into this sphere. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? He might have a change of heart, but I'd be surprised if he comes back purely because it just makes it look like he was a victim or he was... He's all about ego, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't feel very 
It, it, looks, like, it, it to, looks like Musk's done him a yeah, favour, Yeah, it's like crawling it? back. Yeah. Like I, so I can see why he's not doing it, and as, as he seems to be quite happy on Truth Social. So, um, Steve, the reason I was and remain uncertain about banning Trump... Actually, no, I was pretty certain about it at the point it happened when he was clearly quite dangerous, uh, and, and him having the mouthpiece of Twitter could have had potentially uh, even more ruinous consequences than it did. As of right now, my twin difficulties with the idea of, one, that he is running for president, and, and he is not... Perhaps he should be a Yahoo joke candidate, but he's actually quite a serious contender. Uh, and there's also the fact that... Is it not weird that Donald Trump is off while, to cite just one topical example, the Ayatollah Khamenei is on? Yeah, so I hate to, to concede points, but yes, I mean, both of those things are true. On the first point, which I think is the biggest one, that's the weirdness of everything that we got, is that he in, is indeed potentially running for president and perhaps may even get through the various hoops that we thought he couldn't possibly get through the first he, time. He, and is, it, at and end up he doing. is at least a chance. He, he Absolutely so. And that is quite strange in itself, I think, in many mm. ways, that that would have been so unthinkable in the past that somebody who'd done this list of things, both of the things before he got elected the first time, let alone what happened in, in, in uh, January, that he's going to be a serious candidate. And that poses huge problems for media wanting to, both for social media, but also for media wanting to cover that. It's noticeable. I don't think I've certainly, I don't think any of us have ever seen it before, how you regularly see in um, in newspapers now and indeed broadcasters as well, he said such and such, which is false. Mm. That never needed to be said. You'd have, this is what's been said, but someone else takes a different view. And now a decision has been taken that, like, you cannot just say on the one hand on the other. You have to repeatedly say about this previously elected president, person who wants to become president again, that was a lie. And that's a very strange place to have got to. I got, you know, it just doesn't happen except if you're talking about, you know, North Korea or something normally. But within democracies, you don't have that situation. See, Nadine, as we were discussing earlier, and just a final quick thought on this one, um, People on Twitter enjoy freaking out untowardly um, <laughs> about pretty much anything. And making memes about it. And making memes about it. But do you think people are freaking out untowardly about Elon Musk's acquisition of it? Um, the problem is, is it does feel like we're all on a bit of a cliff edge because he's treating this huge social media platform, which is important for journalism, activists, etc., like a game and like a plaything. So I, d I don't think the concern is unwarranted. And it, it, from the sounds of former employees on Twitter who are explaining what's happened, he has gutted a lot of the, the, uh, the website. So while things might tick over for a while... There is that concern moving forward, particularly if there's a lot of revenue lost. It could collapse. You know, Elon Musk himself has said bankruptcy is an option. And it just feels like a billionaire's plaything when actually it means so much to so many people. I wouldn't be a journalist without Twitter. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like it's created people's livelihoods. So I don't think the concern is untoward. Um, but I also think Elon Musk, I, I, I honestly will happily say I hate him. Like I really, <laughs> really hate him. He's like the worst kind of person just ever. Um, not ever, but. He's up there. I, I so, dare you to put that on Twitter and see what happens. Make, he's make, up there. make sure to tag him in. Um, he's up there. But yeah, so I think I don't think concerns are unfounded um, in this vein. It's it's very unpredictable, and I, I worry that people might get complacent. Um, it could just one day you try and go on Twitter and it's gone. Like that genuinely could happen. Well, let us move on on this flinched 
London Day, liable to cause one to be scrammed up to Blatherskite regarding a new initiative to preserve arcane regional slang. And you may now have figured out what we have done there. The podcast network Steady plans to encourage broadcasters to sponsor a word drawn from Britain's rich lexicon of regional phraseology, captured in recordings made shortly after World War II, now in danger of fading from the dictionary. Well, earlier I spoke to the lead curator in spoken English at the British Library, Johnny Robinson who was also an advisor on the project. I began by asking him whether we can recover such local terms given the tendency of language to evolve and regenerate. Oh, absolutely. Yes, language change is inevitable. and I don't, I don't think we're going to stop that or, or would want to stop that, really. I suppose the exercise is to kind of, uh, as I say, celebrate um, this regional diversity we have in, in the English language here in the UK and establish what the current situation is. I think um, the recordings we have in our archive were created in the 1950s as a result of, of, of a, a sense that perhaps dialects were changing quite rapidly post Second World War, and therefore they wanted to document the varieties that were available then. And, and our sound archive continues to do that. So we've had a number of surveys since then. We've got wonderful oral history recordings and other linguistic surveys that capture kind of a snapshot at given points in time of, of, of the state and status of, of British regional English, if you like. And I suppose this is another way of revisiting it and, and getting um, podcasters to celebrate their local words. I mean, how regionally specific are these terms, though, in general? Are they, uh, do they tend to be words for local geography or local food or local weather conditions, or are there just as many local expressions for more or less universal concerns? Absolutely. There's a variety of words on their list. Um, and, and yes, you're absolutely right. Typically, um, if we think of traditional dialect terms, then there are lots of words for local flora and fauna or geographic features, uh, weather, etc., etc. But the, there's a, a set here that, that cover all sorts of things. So, I mean, one, one is a, a term Celt for money, um, which was attributed to Lancashire in, in our sound archives in the 1950s. But as you rightly said at the start, are, are these so locally specific? The interesting thing about dialect is often, you know, people will claim this word is only used in my town or my village or my <laughs> location. But, um, you know, dialect doesn't work like that. It works in a continuum. And of course, there are some words that are specifically focused on on small areas or larger areas but of course they they move about with the speakers and it's the speakers themselves who um who capture that dialect do you have any particular favorites of your own um my own uh, particular favorite word i think is the word nesh which i don't know whether you're familiar with do you know i am not nesh? i am not familiar with nesh <laughs> so nesh is a term and again i'm going to have to be very careful because it's used in a number of dialects but the kind of the um the, the focus of of where it's used is pretty much the heartlands of the midlands and the north of england uh and it's a term that means sensitive to the cold so if somebody's averse to going into the uh, sea in a british summer they might be described <laughs> as nesh or that kind of thing or or they put the central heating on far too early which of course none of us are wanting to do at the moment so they might be described as nesh and the reason i like it i think is because it's a term that was very familiar growing up where where i grew up in, in yorkshire and then later in the midlands I mean, do you find that there tends to be a richer lexicon of these things um in the northern parts of england are, are southerners just as good as coming up with ideas of their own Absolutely. Yeah, I think we have to be careful. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a stereotypical image of a certain kind of dialect, 
potentially broad rural dialect that we associate with kind of more remote rural locations in the north of England or in Scotland. And certainly there are some wonderful examples of dialects there. But yes, uh, variation exists across the country. And that might be to do with geography. It might be generational differences. It might be as a result of migration. Obviously, there's, there's you know, a wonderful new hybrid voice emerging in London uh, among young speakers in London called Multicultural London English that shows influences of traditional Cockney dialect, but also more recent influences from um, British Caribbean communities, British Asian communities and beyond. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we, we, we want to um, track and document in our sound archives. I mean, is that getting harder? By which I guess I'm asking, do you get the sense now that for all the obvious reasons, whether it's cross-pollination of cultures, um, ease of access to other people's ideas and language via the internet, that language now changes faster than it used to? Um, I think um, it still changes most uh, noticeably in face-to-face -face communication. So it's, you know, people to people. Uh, but of course, as, as you've described, we all move about much more than we used to 50, 100 years ago. We all come into contact with a wider variety of people. Uh, you know, wonderfully positive things like greater access to education has meant that people stay in schools longer and potentially go on to study uh, in different locations. And so we do, in most cases, encounter a much wider range of speech varieties than we might have done 50, 100 years or so ago. So that's bound to have an impact on language. But nonetheless, um, you know, communities, particularly communities with stable populations, do retain uh, a sense of identity through their speech. I mean, we would all in the UK recognise that you can make a journey from south to north through the country and, and you do notice differences as, as you move across space. That was Johnny Robinson, lead curator in spoken English at the British Library, speaking to me earlier. Well, we'll bring our panel back in now. Um, Nadine, as he was saying, this does appear to be a bit of a specialty of the, the northern and Midlandish parts of England, which is where you are from. Um, could you please perhaps then introduce our listeners to some native spoken Birmingham? Yeah, so um, having a tot is having a drink. <laughs> Um, a gamble is a forward roll. Um, then you've got Tarara Do you do bit. a lot of forward rolling in Birmingham? That's the thing. I've always wondered why we have our own word for it. Yeah. Because when did that happen? Like, I mean, I've, I've, I've been a few times. I did not see unusual numbers of people somersaulting. Yeah. Um, we also say nose, which is someone's being annoying. <laughs> um, we also say mom instead of mum. And I think, I don't know anywhere else in the UK, actually, that says mom. I, 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 unless I'm wrong, maybe in Ireland, maybe they might say it, but definitely not here. Um, and the last one I will give you is um, Boston, um, which is like... It's a, it's a term of approval, isn't yeah, it? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So there you go. See, ju just the other day, I was trying to do my bit to inculcate the Australian vernacular into the playgrounds of North London by talking to the teenage son of a friend of mine and urging him to, next time an associate of his behaved in a foolish, um, careless, but essentially non-malicious way to refer to them as a buffhead, <laughs> which is just an Australian word I have always liked. It's, 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 it, you, it's being dismissive yet vaguely affectionate. Yeah. The, the buffhead didn't do it on purpose. They simply know no better. <laughs> they are a buffhead. Um, Steve, where you come from, do you have any popular expressions that you would like to resurrect? Well, I feel so lame. So it's, it's the classic Southern discussion. Actually, coming from Dorset, I was trying to think, why do I not know any? So I looked up and thought there must be lots and actually discovered that the ones that were there were completely unfamiliar to me, various kind of nature things. The one that I did like, which I didn't know but when looking it up, was that Dumbledore turns out 
that to be a Dorset or West Country word for bumblebee, and apparently that's why Rowling chose it for her character. He buzzes around and is there for a bumblebee. Or appropriated it in the indignant social media. Exactly, I should feel that this is cultural appropriation exactly from my corner of the world. So, yeah, so actually very few that I could think of. I mean, something like scrumpy is regional, Mm -hmm. but that's just a thing rather than a a dialect word on something. Um, But I do love those kind of old words. One of my absolute favourite Twitter accounts, if people don't follow her, is just complete beyond perfect, is Susie Dent, Mm -hmm. the kind of the word guru of all time. And the way that she will always come up with some extraordinary word from past centuries, which are exactly relevant for the moment. So in recent days, there was some... latibulate, a word to find a corner and hide in it, which I thought was very nice and appropriate for the consequence. Sequacity, I thought was nice, following a person or cause without independent judgment. And um, and also, appropriate for the time of year, quaff-tide, which is, means the moment when it's just about right, ready for a drink. So I'm always interested as well by the way that words can fade away and come back with a different meaning. Like in Australia, the, the slang term bonza was, an, I think it was a, a cousin of Boston. It was a thing that people probably used to say in the post-war period to denote something that was genuinely very good. And then it kind of faded because I think people found it sort of embarrassing and antiquated and very old school Australian. But it now has sort of re- reappeared as a thing that people say... They keep its original meaning as an expression that things are going well, but it's usually now uttered when things are going incredibly badly in a really leaden tone. Yeah, it's. I mean, this isn't slang, but when people say that's sick, like that became a different yeah, meaning. Um, so, well, yeah, words can change their meaning. I would say in Birmingham, maybe one of the things... Unfortunately, my accent isn't very prominent when I'm not talking to my family anymore because I went <laughs> to university. Um, but things like talking about Peaky Blinders and stuff, that used to be a term used more to like talk about gangsters that's kind of come back as somebody who's half jamaican i will say it's been fascinating to see jamaican slang integrated (laughs) into the english language completely unknowingly and it drives me mad when people describe things like wagwan um gyal or this kind of stuff as london slang it's like it's not london slang that is exactly how my granddad used to speak like wagwan is how jamaican people greet each other yeah boy all of that is how jamaican people speak it's not because jamaica has patois it has jamaican english and then it has jamaican patois which in many ways is its own language for example child is pickney in in uh, in jamaica it's like a merge of like west african mm-hmm. languages and english and so yeah it, it it's a great thing but i just hope that when people say wagwan and particularly people like Michael Fabricant, who did this whole thing on Twitter about how he, he was depressed that youth were talking like this these days, um, is recognised as Jamaican slang that Londoners like to use and not um, <laughs> London slang or whatever, because it be- really annoys me. <laughs> Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Steve Crawshaw, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, when in spring 2020, millions of us were confined indoors by pandemic lockdowns, gaming emerged unsurprisingly as one of the most popular ways to pass the time. Many gamers opted for war games like Call of Duty, which was downloaded tens of millions of times. London's Imperial War Museum is now home to a new exhibition, War Games, which explores how the reality of war is represented in the virtual world of a video game. Monocle's Emily Sands spoke to the exhibition's co-curator Ian Kikuchi. She asked him what visitors can see at the exhibition. War Games is an exhibition at Imperial War Museum London. It's all about the stories that video games tell about war and conflict. So visitors will meet developers from a a wide range of video games. Uh, They'll see historic artefacts from the museum's collection. 
Uh, and I'll also see the ways that um, kind of video games are starting to influence the way that real wars and conflicts are being fought today. Coming up this weekend, we have the War Games Live event, which is a half-day festival of panel discussions and all about war and conflict and its interaction interaction with video games and featuring speakers including uh, celebrated games designers like John and Brenda Romero, academics, journalists. So a really interesting range of voices, I think. When going through the process of creating this exhibition with your co-creator, Chris Cooper, what was the main point that you wanted to get through to people visiting this exhibition? Yeah, when we were developing this exhibition, I really wanted both to appeal to, to people who play video games and to encourage them to think about the ways their games tell stories of war and conflict, but also for those who don't play games, to get them to think about just what an incredibly diverse medium video games are. I think it's very often the case that we, we think of video games and we think of biggest or most successful franchises. And that's a little bit unfortunate, actually, because I think the, the world of video games is so broad and so diverse. And the variety of stories that are being told is incredibly varied now. A game called Bury Me, My Love. So Bury Me, My Love is a game in which you play the husband of a Syrian refugee who's making that journey. And you, you communicate, the entire game plays out in this kind of messaging app where you're trying to give advice, trying to give support as your, as your, your wife character in this game makes that incredibly dangerous journey. What is it about warfare games that have made them so popular? I kind of feel like my generation in specific is maybe sort of obsessed with playing war games. War is a hugely dramatic subject, for one thing. There's always a friendly and an enemy side. There's always conflict and there's always contest. That sets up competition and drama. And war is a, a kind of privileged part of our culture. The Second World War is, is looked back on with enormous pride, for example. We've just passed through Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day. You know, we, we remember the world wars. They're huge parts of modern British culture. And so I think, you know, when games tell us stories set in these in these times, they resonate against our own kind of cultural understanding of what those periods of time must have been like. When we look at different types of warfare games, how do you think that these different approaches translate to the audience to what war might actually be like? I think, firstly, video games are a narrative form. They can tell stories. And so to some extent, it's simply a matter of what question does the game designer, the game developer, the writer want to tell. And that story can be a, a rip-roaring roller coaster action thrill ride or it can be a very sensitive, very carefully thought through, very heartfelt, very tragic story about, about loss or destruction or grief. And I think it's a great thing that video games have that are increasingly have a wider and wider kind of emotional range. Also, it should be said that the war experience is also incredibly varied. You know, we often think of the war experience as being that of a soldier, but actually more and more games are telling us about the civilian experience. And so that is, I think, the other half of the coin, which, you know, games are getting increasingly good at kind of bringing to the surface. There is sometimes maybe a comfortableness about playing things on our consoles or our computers, which seem to echo real life. And there will always be, I think, a, a question of, of taste or what is too close. And there are always ways, I think, also that you know, certain conflicts get remembered in different ways in, in different games. You know, the Second World War has, for many years, seemed like a place where you can tell adventure stories. You know, and you see that in war films going all the way back to the 1950s. You know, the Second World War has always seemed like a, a good versus evil story where it's, it's, good to have, it's okay to have adventures. The First World War, by contrast, has always seemed like just a tragic, futile waste. It's been harder to tell adventures-type stories in the First World War. I don't doubt that there will, in years to come, be a, a game set in, for example, the Ukraine. You know, it will be up to whoever develops that game to, to decide what is appropriate to depict in such a game. Uh, you know, we've already seen that games set in the Iraq war, which is um, you know, relatively recent history, have been very controversial. Films have been experimenting with this or been wrestling with this kind of issue for 
a century, you know, how to depict war in film. But games, I think, aren't yet widely accepted as an art form. That makes the question as to how could games do something appropriate with war and conflict all the more complicated, I think. How beneficial has the use of video games and video game consoles been in terms of actually training people that are in the military? So these days, more and more military training gets done using uh, either things that look like video games but might properly be called simulations. This goes back quite a long way. So as early as the, the 1980s, the US Army was experimenting with using uh, an arcade game called Battlezone to teach tank gunnery. In the end, that didn't, that didn't, get, didn't go very far, but it, it kind of laid the, the groundwork, I think, for accepting that games are interactive, they, teach you, they can teach you skills, they can also punish your mistakes, so they, they can be quite a useful kind of training tool. And so more and more training these days is done using sophisticated simulators. It's also interesting to see the way that video gaming technology finds its way into the hands of, of soldiers. So, for example, we have on display an Xbox 360 controller that a few years ago in Afghanistan was being used to operate drones flying perimeter patrols over British bases. But of course, why wouldn't you use an Xbox controller? You know, the, the troops are familiar with it. It does the job. It has all the control, all the buttons and all the controls you need. It's cheap. It's readily available. Sometimes uh, it's curious to see, you know, bits of civilian entertainment technology being used in, in war zones to do really very serious work. Monocle's Emily Sands reporting there and that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily thanks to our panellists today Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Steve Crawshaw. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow Thanks for listening <laughs>